Welcome to the Smart Connector, the podcast that builds your influence, wealth, and success as an entrepreneur. If you haven't done so already, hit that subscribe button to make sure you never miss an episode. If you're ready to scale up and ready for your best year yet, check the link in the show notes to join my free masterclass on scaling your business and enjoying your best life. Now let's get going with the episode. So hello, Alex. It's great to have you here with us. Great to be here. Thanks, Jane. So, Alex, let's get straight into it. You do something really exciting, which is help founders of tech businesses raise finance so that they can grow their businesses faster. So I'd love to focus in on that topic today. And just if you can just introduce yourself and tell us exactly what you do and how you got to do what you do, I think that would be a great start. Yeah, absolutely. I focus on getting technology startups or what I call investor ready. There isn't always necessarily companies that are looking to raise money at that particular point. But in my experience, uh, a company that is investor ready, so that would be attractive to investors, is also a company that would be attractive to the market as well. So if you're still bootstrapping, it's still worth becoming investor ready because the market will appreciate it as well. So my background Primarily as a project manager and then as a product manager, I've been working in that space for about nine years now. And I guess my my interest and excitement isn't specifically around the technology in of itself. It's more to do with what that technology allows us to do and how it allows us to be as, I guess, as humanity. It's a, a really, what I find fascinating is how uh, technology can automate areas of our lives and allow us to to enjoy things that we wouldn't have necessarily been able to enjoy prior to that technology existing. My passion uh, and my drive comes from wanting to be able to facilitate and be a part of of that kind of technological revolution that we're going through at the moment to be able to allow us to move forward in in humanity. And I think my background kind of first started as a a project manager, as I'm not technical in any way. I I don't code. I don't write code at all. I'm not a, a developer. I'm not artistic in any way, so I'm not a designer, um, but I am able to kind of match a problem with a a group of people uh, and try and understand the solution and maybe the business side of things, which is what I like to add to the companies I work with. So as a project manager, I was able to kind of organize and build processes Uh, as a product manager, then obviously building on from that, match those, that building of processes and, and products to what it means to the market. And I've worked with a wide range of companies over the last nine years and specifically over the last three years, lots of startups all over the world. The processes and techniques that I use are completely industry agnostic. I've worked with augmented reality technology put in med tech all the way through to SaaS products in real estate to all all sorts of um, different companies, verticals, different types of products. Uh, What they all had in common is that it started with um, a man or a woman or a couple of people uh, with an idea or something that they want to be able to either solve or to build in, in the world. And then we've taken that from that idea out of their heads and made it into a, a real thing. So that's kind of a, a summary of the last few years of, of my life. Brilliant, brilliant. It's such an exciting area as you as you discuss because 
it isn't just uh, tech isn't just something that, as you said, exists independently. It is something that is constantly moving us forward in our lives, isn't it? So I can understand why you would be really excited about it. And there must be a real buzz around helping startups find investments so that they can actually bring their ideas to market. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really, really interesting. And I think the what I find exciting is the narrowing down of and the kind of niching down of an idea and then building it back up. A really common thing that I hear from startups when I ask them who is the problem, who is it for, who's the product for, who, whose problem are you solving? Um, the, the common answer I get a lot of the time is it's for everyone which is both my favorite and least favorite answer <laughs> because <laughs> uh, because uh, it, it's a it's my favorite answer because it knows it lets me know that I've got a lot of work to do um, and there's lots of things conversations we can have but I mean it's my least favorite because it doesn't actually mean anything if something is for everyone I'm of the belief it's for no one you could think of any of the biggest companies in the world they will have a really specific understanding of who their core users are if you think of even of companies like Apple or Nike or whoever, you will not find anyone who understands their vision saying that their product is for everyone, despite them having tens and hundreds of millions of people um, buying their products each year. To, to be able to build something that from scratch that people don't know about, you really need to understand who that's for. And I think that's one of the things I find really interesting is working with people is to work out where their mindset is and trying to discover. So that's when we go through this discovery period, discover what the problem is, who the, who the problem is for and how we expect to go and solve it. Amazing, amazing. So Alex, how would you actually get a tech business, a small tech business investor ready? What is your process? Yeah, good question. So I have, I work with a methodology that I've built up over the last few years from the experience I've worked with different companies. And that is based around what I call my five M's. So that's the, the management, market, the model, the method and moving on. Those five areas are the areas that I understand to be important to investors. This is based on working with companies and also with speaking to investors. And so to go through them one by one, the management obviously is that the people who are in charge of running this company. In fact, this is probably, if not the most, one of the most important areas that all investors speak about. Who is going to be in charge of it? Who has this vision? What, what are they like? Who is the team that surrounds them? Do they understand the technology? Do they understand the business? Do they understand, do they work well together? Do they uh, complement each other in, in terms of their skill sets? So that's one area that's really important. Uh, so we work on that. The, the second I mentioned is market. So it's understanding the market. And that really comes down to uh, the fundamentals of who is the user? What's the user persona? What problems do they have? How are we solving their problems? what their pain points, their frustrations, their goals, their motivations, their fears. What's the market look like in a broader sense as well? What's the total addressable market and how does the kind of the, the other elements play into that as well, the more specific elements? So how do you understand the market? And we work on that, uh, the processes to understand that as well. The third piece I mentioned is the model. So the business model, how, how will this, what's the viability of this product? How can this product support a business? How can we Ultimately, what's the plan to get this product into the hands of the right people at a price that is more than it's going to cost us to do so? That's the, kind of the, the bottom line of, of what that is. So do we need to work out what channels we're going to use? Do we need to work out partners? Um, what will the partnership costs be? What will the cost of delivery be? All those things and understand the elements around that. 
then the method is ultimately the product. So the method of delivery, how are we delivering this solution to people? Is it going to be a mobile app? Is it going to be a, a hardware um, piece of technology? Does the technology even exist at the moment that we're able to, to that we need to be able to um, deliver this? Or is there going to be some other kind of auxiliary technology that we need to develop to be able to deliver this product as well? How can we build a proof of concept to show that this solution actually works? How can we test that within going back to the market? How, we, how can we test this proof of concept within the market to show that actually this is a solution that's viable for people? And moving on, the last one is ultimately exit strategy. So one thing that a lot of entrepreneurs don't really consider is when they're looking for investment, what the return on investment is going to be and when that return on investment can expect to be realized by the investor um, and also by the entrepreneur. The investors like to know that the founder has in their mind when or how they expect to be able to realize a return on, on their own investment in their business. We know that projections and forecasts are 100% wrong 100% of the time, but it's to have that mindset of work, being able to try and plan that type of thing and, and think about it, that's important. So those are the five areas that, that we focus on. And we do that through kind of a, a scorecard. So we have a scorecard where we answer a number of questions and that will be able to give you a score overall and your investor readiness and also in those five areas. And then off the back of that, we build a journey for you for education with different courses and connections through the community that we're building at the moment to, to be able to get you from where you are to be an investor ready. Amazing. Well, I, that sounds like a very robust process, Alex. And so how long typically would it take from somebody working with you or making an initial inquiry to actually getting to the point where they're making that presentation and they're actually getting the money into their bank account to, in order to move forward with their business? Is there a typical time scale? It really can depend. And I know that's a vague answer, but I think it depends on at the point where they come to us. So if we were to say someone who's to come to us with just an idea, so all they've got is an idea in their head, I think it might be cool if this was an app. If they came to me with that kind of mindset from that point and they were kind of putting everything into it, so they're working on, on this full time, they were able to be responsive and learn and apply the stuff that they were learning from the courses and being able to you know, make the best of the connections that are made through us as well. At that point, I mean, depending on the technology required and the type of product, you can look anything between kind of 12 months, 24 months from, from that point. If someone was to come to us and they've already got some of the things built, they have maybe a, a proof of concept and they've got a, a good team together, we could expect a, a, a much shorter timeline on that as well. So it really does depend on how ready they are when they come to us and how responsive they are to, to working with us. Mm -hmm. So I know that you offer uh, courses, Alex, but also you mentioned that you do work with entrepreneurs who are further down the line and perhaps already have a prototype or just have everything in place, a business plan and so on. And all they really want to do is raise investment. So if they if those types of founders come to you, would you would you put them through your courses or would you start working with them directly to help them raise the finance that they need? Yeah, good question. So ultimately, the, the goal for us is to be able to put people in a position where they are attractive to investors. So if they come to us and they are, they kind of go through our initial process of, of us kind of assessing where they are and they are able to share the documents and the prototypes and MVP and all the other stuff that they have already built and we find that they are ready to be kind of Put in front of investors then yes i we, we are having to kind of introduce them to the investors that we have on our books 
part of the reason why we go through the process is because the investors that we work with trust our process. Yes. From their perspective, they receive hundreds of emails with pitch decks and business plans and all sorts. And there's there's two sides to it. They either waste time going through them um, or they miss potential opportunities because they don't go through them. Working with us, they find that our, our process kind of truncates that whole the whole process so they know that anyone that we put in front of them would have been through this process they would have um, at least achieved certain milestones before they're in front of these these investors so if someone came to us and they kind of go through the initial part of the process where we assess things yes absolutely we're happy to put them in front of the investors because we know that they've, they've achieved those areas the courses aren't the, are kind of mandatory they are there to help these investors Sorry, these uh, founders get to the point where the investors would find their their businesses attractive. Yeah, yeah, I I, I get it. And of course, if you've got that far with an an idea and you're very excited about it, then you want to do everything you can, I would imagine, to make you investable to, to those people. Okay, so Alex, what I'd like to move on and ask you about is the profile of your investors. What is a typical tech investor look like? And I'm I'm asking that question because I work a lot with real estate investors, for example. If somebody said to me, what does a real estate investor look like? Then I would be able to give them a very specific profile of, of certain different types, should we say. So yeah. are there different types of tech investors or do they tend to kind of fit maybe a mold? Yeah. So there are things that they all have in common, but generally, yeah, they are a, a diverse group. So Generally, the, the kind of type that we work with are what I'd call the entrepreneur investors. So they're people who have successful exits in a business that they, they created themselves. So they, they were entrepreneurs previously. They've made money from their their own ventures and they now want to invest in the next big thing. A lot of them talk about the, the next big thing or the next kind of big innovation. And they may not be necessarily motivated to try and work out what that is themselves but they want to look at talent, talented, driven people who, who have had these ideas and see if they can be a part of that. So that, that's, that's kind of quite a, quite a common type that we work with. They are motivated by the financial return, of course, but I think more than that, it's part of kind of the recognition of being involved in something that's going to be kind of groundbreaking. Yeah, uh, and I guess the personal achievement and the impact that they can have on these businesses as well those are areas that they that they really focus on it's quite good to have that type of investor because generally they aren't as i said they aren't purely focused on the financial so they are happy to to forego dividends or return for sometimes even a number of years to see that the business is successful we don't want kind of people who are going to necessarily fundamentally change the business so that they can get a return quicker the, the people that we work with, the investors that we work with, want to work with the businesses so they have they achieve long term success, and so so they are they are mindful of that and sensitive to the fact that sometimes early on there's a the competing uh, priorities between growth and revenue, uh, and we, we want the investors who are on the same side as as the the founders in in sense that they're looking for long term growth. Yeah, uh, we also find I think that there's that there's a split. Sometimes there are investors who are really industry specific so they may for instance they may have made their money in in banking uh, and they are interested in fintech apps for instance because that's an area that they know well 
Um, so they, if, in that case, they are likely to want to act as an advisor and be part of the the, the kind of strategic side of the business as well and help the, the founders with an industry that they know well. They may have good contacts and good uh, industry knowledge. That's that's an investor type that we work with. We also have the opposite, uh, where they are industry agnostic in terms of where they invest and they are really interested in the kind of understanding the commercial aspect of it rather than the, the um, nitty gritty of the specific industry. Um, and they may be more hands-off. Again, if, if that suits the founder and it suits the entrepreneur, then we're happy to to match those as well. So when we start working with the investors, we do look at kind of building a profile around them. So what industries they're looking to, what size of businesses they, they, they want to start at, so whether they want to be putting a few few tens or hundreds of thousands into a really early stage without an MVP, or if they want to be looking at putting a few million in a million into a series A uh, that has paying users, we, we, we profile that as well. So we get a good understanding of what their appetite is for risk, stage, industry, geographic location, and so we make sure we match them with the right businesses. Mm, brilliant. So Alex, for some of our listeners, this will be a completely new field. And so could you perhaps just explain the different stages of investment into tech? Because you talked about Series A, and obviously I understand that, but there's a lot of people that they don't understand these different stages and what what the jargon act actually means. So if you if you wouldn't mind just going into that for for our listeners, that would be great. Yeah, sure. So there's different stages and the different stages of investment depend on uh, a couple of things, really the, the amount of money that you're expecting to raise and where you are with the development of your your products and your company. So initially there was kind of the first stage was seed. I think we've we've now seed rounds have become so big that there's now a pre-seed so you have pre-seed before then and i think right at the beginning even before that you'd probably start looking at kind of bootstrapping and that is essentially you using your own money and finding money yourself raising your own money to be able to invest in the, in the business so that might be just to build the mvp the initial kind of first stages of your business get your, your business together when we get together your, your decks and invest in maybe programs that are able to help you move on to the next stage you then have pre-seed and that could be kind of anything from ten thousand pounds or so where you're looking to invest in maybe the development of, of an mvp or pro, a prototype that you're able to then use to be able to either test the market or to, to start approaching investors um you'll have your seed rounds which will be kind of 50 60 000, up to maybe a few hundred thousand where again it's, it's maybe the the building out your team up a bit so you can continue to grow your product, start to get some growth, get some early adopters in to your to your product and start testing the market in a wider way outside of your um, immediate circle. Uh, and then you're looking at your Series A. Now, your Series A, I guess, is probably your first round of generally of professional money or institutional money where you will start looking at kind of seven-figure investments. And this is generally, you've got a product, you've got, um, proof of concept you've got some users in the market has been established to a certain extent you have all the major elements to make this business successful you're now looking at growing it and scaling it um, and at this point you may even start to refer to your business as a scale-up rather than as a startup and, and that's kind of your first first institutional money round after that you have your series b c d uh, as, as many times as you want to go on right up until you decide to exit so to sell the business um, or to sell your shares in the business or to, I guess, for a very 
small number of companies go to, I guess, go to IPO, where you then float on a an exchange of some sort and have public share offerings. Brilliant. Well, that's an incredibly clear explanation. Thank you so much. So just to go back to the Series A and the institutional funds, who would those institutional funders be? Would they be private equity? Would they be venture capital? What would they actually look like, those institutional investors? Yeah, I mean, you can raise it from from private equity. I guess as an angel investor, you'd probably be looking maybe at a seed round rather than Series A. Series A, you're probably more likely looking, as you said, venture capital. So these would be organizations, businesses that are that are set up specifically with the with the intention of investing at this stage and these kind of stages in startups to get a return for their investors and their their shareholders. Mm. So an interesting subject with investment and I I actually teach an investment accelerator but in real estate so we talk a lot about risk and about security and about the different levels of security and returns and the risk reward ratio and so on it's my perception that tech investing tends to attract people who are more comfortable with the concept of risk and do understand that that they are going to lose money in some instances, but that that's going to be offset, if you like, by the incredible returns that are that are really available if, if, if a business succeeds. Am I thinking along the right lines here or am I not? <laughs> Absolutely. You're yeah, completely correct on that. So even if you look at the biggest companies, you look at Sequoia Capital, Benchmark, um, Anderson, Horowitz, they will make a loss on the majority of their investments. At, at, and this is a series A, B, C, so from $2 million upwards, they'll make a loss on the majority of them. The the company that they invest in, however, they are looking at returns of 10 times their investment. So the idea is that all, all the companies that they look at investing on, they're, they're not looking at investing, and this is, a, I guess, something to look at as well from a founder perspective. For a startup, startups aren't designed for marginal gains. It's not worth the risk uh, and the time and effort to improve on something 5%, something that exists. If Microsoft have a product uh, and you have a way of doing it 5% better, um, that's not enough. That's not enough of a return for an investor and it's not really enough of a return. shouldn't be for you. Yeah. Looking, the way these investors will look at things is, can they do this a thousand times better? It needs to be 10 times return. And so... Yes, they are, they are accepting that the majority of them they will make a loss on or they'll make a, a small return on. But the businesses that do succeed, succeed to such a, a level that they offset the, the losses on all the others. Yes. So I would imagine that on the other side, then, there are founders who are, they're probably, I would imagine, serial founders who have struggled and failed and others that have exited spectacularly and are now driving around in Ferraris and living the life of their dreams, right? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, definitely. And I think any of those people who are driving in the, driving around in Ferraris because of the returns they made on a business, um, a tech business, I would put money on, if you spoke to any of them, they would have told you that they have huge failures. They've had huge failures in businesses as well. I guess there are a few that may have kind of lucked out on their first one and then they've cashed in on the first one and not gone back. But I think anyone who's a serial entrepreneur will have 
businesses where they've lost money, where they've fallen out with business partners and maybe even friends and family who put, might put money into it. They are, they have had huge losses, but the success, successful ones would have also had huge successes, and those would those successes would have offset the failures. Amazing. And I have to put in a little plug for a book that I, I, I just love that talks about this, which is The Millionaire Fast Lane by MJ DeMarco. I don't know if you've ever read that, but that's a great book on a particular topic. So. <laughs> yeah, I haven't, but I will. <laughs> yeah, really, really interesting. Now, now another, another word that is banded around a lot in the tech world is this concept of a unicorn, Alex. Could you just explain what a unicorn is, a unicorn business? Yeah, so a uh, a unicorn is a a business that has, I guess, a term that's been used in venture capital. It's a privately held startup with a value of over a billion dollars. So it's over, it's worth over a billion, but it's not floats for public ownership. If you wanted to have a unicorn business, what is it that makes a company, privately held company, worth a billion dollars? How how can how can you say that's going to be a unicorn company? Because I've heard people say that. <laughs> it's interesting. So of course that that is often the goal. And I think before we even get to that point, I think it's definitely important that founders look at and understand not only the industry and the market, but also understand their own drive for what they want from their businesses and from their lives i guess the the unicorn unicorn businesses are are, are massive i mean they're, they're the kind of the facebook's the twitter's those kind of companies and they take on a, a life of their own often you find that the founders end up not being the ceos after a certain period of time because the skill set to start and start a business is a different skill set than it is to to run a business of that size but I think there's there, there are so many different um, factors that come into play whether the company can reach that kind of billion dollar valuation. Uh, I think less than 0.1% of all software startups ever reach that billion dollar uh, valuation. Um, mm. So it's a, a really, really small percentage. And, these, and that percentage is talking about um, software startups that are successful. These aren't including the ones that fail. Um, so it's a tiny, tiny percentage. I guess there is the dream is, is to, for, for a lot of companies is to get to that point. But I think having a, a good balance of understanding of the market, understanding of really good feedback and good processes within the company to be able to be responsive and, and reactive at the same time as being innovative and, pre and proactive gives the best chance of being able to develop your company towards that kind of high, super high valuation. Very, very interesting. Okay, so so Alex, would you say that there's a particular profile of a successful founder? I mean, well, you you obviously meet a, a few. So so what what would you say you're looking for in terms of the characteristics of the of the founders that you know, you know come to you? Yeah. So again, so there, there is a a wide range and kind of personality touch but there are also as i said with the investors there's a kind of under things that underpin i guess pretty much all of them one thing that i think is really interesting uh, and really important is startup founders entrepreneurs and investors but entrepreneurs need to believe two things fundamentally they need to believe that the world can be better than it is now uh, and they need to believe that they have the power to make it so 
that is kind of an, almost an arrogant belief that they have an impact on they can have an impact on the world to improve things but that that has to be has to underpin the idea of everything that you're doing so that the things that you you are doing are within your control and you can make things better so that that optimism that ambitiousness that drive that's kind of those are kind of i guess soft skills or things that underlie underpin no matter what industry or what kind of technology or whatever their background is those things are important to, to for all founders to have i think having a passion for not even necessarily the technology, but for, for, for the problem solving, for the critical thinking, for the and having the empathy to be able to lead a team and for the, to have the empathy to be able to solve problems for people that aren't you, ultimately, because it's very rare that the, the founder will necessarily be the core user persona. Uh, to have to have that empathy and balance that with being able to run a viable business, I think those are skill sets that the investors look for uh, and the people that we put forward to them and, and ultimately the people that we look for to be part of our programs. Amazing. So Alex, I've got another question, which is, are there any particular sectors that you're seeing really successful trends in at the moment? Is, is there like, do you have a favourite sector, for example, or, or is it, are you very much sector agnostic yourself? I, so I am really sector, sector agnostic. In terms of types of technology, I mean, SaaS products, so software as a service, they always do well, especially when they're subscription model, because that's, it's, an, it's easy to value those higher. Um, if they have subscriptions, especially if they're monthly subscriptions, with, which have the, uh, the option for annual subscriptions, they value quite well. And I like working on those types of products, web-based SaaS products. I really like and really interested in kind of the more futuristic technologies that are still working their way out a little bit. So things like uh, augmented reality and virtual reality, worked on a few projects with those recently and I'm really interested to see how they are developing, the technologies developing as, as quickly as the businesses are with those things. Internet of things and machine learning, AI, robotics, those types of technologies and, and how they can as they are creeping in, because obviously seeing it from this side of things, it's not just all of a sudden these technologies are here. You'll see lots of failures and, and iterations before they get to something that's actually user-facing, user-working. And those types of things I find really interesting myself. Trend-wise, there's a, a big trend in media and broadcasting technology, a lot in fintech as well, so financial services. Those, those ones are trending quite highly at the moment. I think a lot of the accelerators around the world are looking at things that are, are working towards that and they have been over the last few years but also i guess since the the physical world has been disrupted so heavily with covid19 and over the last year there's a lot in terms of meetings and remote working remote virtual events there's a lot of businesses that are trending up with that as well so those those are things obviously we don't know how long the impact will be or how big the impact will be longer term with with COVID-19 so we don't know how far these companies will go in terms of continuing to innovate but at least for the next few years that seems to be where things are things are headed. Mm, I think that's an interesting point you said at least for the next few years I mean even if things were to get back to normal within a couple of months if by some miracle we're all living the life that we lived a year ago then I think our fundamentally our behaviour has changed, hasn't it, Alex? And so, 
you know, the technology is it's become all important, an all important feature of many of our lives, hasn't it? Well, uh, yeah, absolutely. It's changed how we think about things. Yeah. So an employee is now sure because they've done it for the last six months. So actually, they can execute their job just as well from home as they do from the office. So if if another if, if they have an, a commute to work that's an hour um, each way, that's two hours of their day, which they're not getting paid for, which is essentially work time, getting offered a, a, another job that pays exactly the same, but you get to work from home whenever you want, is actually saving you money and time. And actually, you may decide to prefer that. So employers will then clock onto that as a trend as well and start making provisions for people to work from home more, which will also have implications for... I guess freelancers and, and contractors who are able to to claim that back from on their taxes for the time they spend working at home, and it, it changes the whole ecosystem of of, of work because people's yeah. mindset has changed. So even if we are able to go back into the office tomorrow um, as normal, um, I don't know how many people necessarily would. Yeah, I, it is an absolutely fascinating topic, isn't it? And I I, I think, as you said, the, the changes are very far reaching because. I know, for example, we have a property business up in Liverpool and there's a lot of people that over the course of the last few months, they've actually moved there from London because they are working remotely and they realise that they can have a much better quality of life with bigger rooms and, and apartments and so on if they move to a cheaper area. So there's going to be very, very uh, far reaching consequences, I think, of this. And of course, consequences bring opportunities, don't they, in tech? Absolutely. I mean, if you even think about using your example, well, if they can no longer have to no longer have to live in London, they can live in Liverpool or somewhere where the cost of living is lower. Then, from the employer's perspective, well, they can all if they can do that remotely from three hundred miles away, then could we not get someone who is just as good, who is three thousand miles away, um, who has an even cheaper cost of living, and they may be just as skilled or uh, maybe even more skilled in in that particular area. If the remote work works from hundreds of miles, it also works from thousands of miles, and it then allows companies to become global businesses because they don't rely on the physical presence as much anymore. So that changes the the kind of the ecosystem around that as well, and, and gives a global feel to many businesses that may have been more locally focused. Mm. And I think when we talk about this, I'm sure that there are some people who they just want things to stay the same. And I can understand that because as humans, we tend to resist change. We don't really like it because it's not always very comfortable. And of course, the thing about tech, it is about pushing the boundaries. It is about innovation and about change and opportunity. But not everybody's going to like that. There are always winners and losers, aren't there, where, where tech's involved? Yeah, of course. I think so. I I would say that I'm, I guess, by nature of the what I do and who I work with, I am an advocate for for tech moving us forward. But I can appreciate that there, yes, there are, there has always been people who are resistant to to change, and also that it's it's difficult to be able to to envisage what the change will look like and, until the change is there. That's something I always always speak about, and there was a quote saying that everything that has that will ever be invented or created by humans has already been created there's nothing left to, to invent and that quotes from the late 1880s um, <laughs> so prior to there being telephones or cars or airplanes or computers or the internet or smartphones or anything that we basically anything we use on a daily basis they believe that everything had already been created um and 100 years later we, we've 
created so much more that we use as as a matter of course. Again, there's um people there was a, a, a news, newspaper article that complained about people isolating themselves because of this new technology where they they didn't speak to people around them anymore and they might sound like smartphones but actually they're talking about laptops um when laptops first came out uh, and the same thing was actually said about newspapers so uh, when newspapers first came out so wow. i think there's there's always going to be a, a negative kind of social aspect and also an, an economic one as well people were concerned about what the car would do to those people who worked as blacksmiths and and looked after and farriers people who looked after horses that's the thing with technology and, and humanity working hand in hand as one increases and, and improves the other adapts to to facilitate that as well jobs mm. of course jobs have been lost and for those individuals who lose jobs it is a, a stressful time but jobs are also created and i would i don't have the facts or the statistics to prove it but i would say i would bet that the number and quality of jobs created outweighs those that are lost of course for the individuals it's, it's never easy but for, for a humanity as a whole it seems that we do move forward and, and improve with technology mm. yeah it's such an interesting topic because there's no doubt about it the speed of change has increased exponentially over the last few decades and as you as you said, it's it's good in many many respects, but for some people it is uncomfortable, and I think that does have consequences for society. Obviously, over and above the issue of um, employability and job creation and all of those wealth creation and all of those things, and I think what it really means for us as as humans is that the people that learn to adapt to change and actually work with it and live with it are going to be the people who are successful in the future. There's no doubt about it in my mind that uh, we simply cannot hold back the tide of change and we've got to embrace it and we've got to become more flexible and open as human beings in order to uh, really survive and thrive going forward, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. And I think I think that's what we do, though. I think we, we, we. I mean, technology isn't handed to us. We create this technology, and we, we, people adopt the technology because it solves a problem for them. And it comes back to, to kind of my micro point when I'm working with businesses is that you need to be solving a problem for someone for them to for people to want to use your product. If this, if the technology that is that we're using we didn't find useful, then we wouldn't use it and it wouldn't exist uh, and we'd create something else. We change how we live based on the technology that's available for us. So when we first started using tools in agriculture, the agricultural revolution meant that we were able to have farms. It meant that every single person wasn't going out every single day to get enough food to make them, keep them alive for that day. We'd actually be able to specialise and have farms and use animals and and tools to be able to grow enough stock that people are able to do other things with their lives. Same as when we moved into the cities in the industrial revolution, we, we were able to build things at a greater magnitude and use divisions of labor to be able to build bigger things so that we were able to do other things with our lives. The same thing is happening now, again, with information technology and the new technological revolution, that we're able to automate certain areas of our lives and be able to do other things with our lives because we're in the midst of it, it's maybe difficult to see where, when it ends or where that, what we will do with our lives, that all the kind of excess that we have. But ultimately, historically, it's shown that we 
move forward and the standard of living improves for the general population, for the pe- people in the 50th percentile, it, it generally improves. I mean, if you think that my standard of living is far exceeds the standard of living that the King of England would have had four or 500 years ago. I mean, I have mm. running water in my house. I have electricity at a, a flick of a switch, heating. I can go anywhere in the country within a few hours things that wouldn't have been available to anyone no matter how much money you had 300 years ago and the same could be could be said for 300 years from now it's it's the nature of the technology that we build as humanity to enhance our own lives so there are likely to be casualties but the the thinking behind it i guess is that the general uh, trend is upwards Amazing. Amazing. So before we finish, Alex, I'd love to talk about your favourite tech platforms or apps. Do you have some favourites that um, you'd like to share? So I have favourites that I use and I guess I have favourites that I really like because of the, how clever they are. So and I guess they, they're interlinked. So I guess one that jumps out to me and I think it's quite an obvious one, but I mean, Spotify, I think Spotify is brilliant uh, and I think it's getting better. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I, I, I listen to a lot of music, but I think what, one of the things I really like about Spotify is how it's improving. So I recently found out that if you you can type in the lyrics of a song now and it comes with a lyrics match and it'll tell you what the song is, which is, which is obviously a clever algorithm. There are many different integrations as well. So it integrates with so many different, it integrates with ways. So when I'm, for the maps, when I'm driving, there's an app that I use for playing guitar and it integrates with that. So I've got a song on Spotify and it integrates with that until it tells me what the chords are. Spotify wow. is, so from a business perspective, it's not just playing music. It's kind of looking at the other things around. And that comes down to understanding your users. It comes down to understanding what your users will be doing. So it might be that they are driving, so then you want to integrate with, with their with ways. It might be that they want to be able to play music themselves, so integrates it with a music playing app. And it looks at un- understanding what their users are, not just in the context of what music they like, but who they are as a person. And I think that is a really, really strong and really powerful message that I'd like to get across to, to founders. Other things I like are uh, uh, Masterclass. I think that's pretty good. So it's kind of learning different different things from famous experts so like cooking from Gordon Ramsay and tennis from Serena Williams I'm quite into like learning apps I guess so I, I like those types of things and I'm always interested to see new social media apps as well and see how they they work so Clubhouse have you heard of Clubhouse? Clubhouse is all the rage at the moment everybody's talking about it uh, yeah. have you been on it? <laughs> so I'm on it this isn't to say that there's anything wrong with it or it's not good it's not for me uh, and I'll tell you why for me, when I use social media, it's something that I do almost subconsciously in the background. So if I'm scrolling through Instagram or scrolling through Facebook, it's something where I'm maybe sitting around and a bit bored. With Clubhouse, the fact that it's all audio, it means I actually have to listen uh, and speak to to interact with it. So it's not for me, but it's interesting to see. I, I know people speak about voice being kind of the next frontier in design as well. So with like the, with the Alexa and Siri and Google Home, voice being a, a, a big future part of, of technology. So it'd be interesting to see where Clubhouse goes. But I, I, I'm part of it and I'm, I'm following it because from a technological perspective rather than a personal interest. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? Because, of course, 
I've I've heard people say, well, it's just great because you can just roll out of bed and pitch up and just start start a room and start talking and you don't have to worry about looking your best or your background or your makeup or whatever. And that seems to be part of the addiction. Yeah. But I, I always think it's important with social media to start with the end in mind and just you can, you know, go in and kind of play around with, with different apps and so on. But at the end of the day, if you're running a business, then you've got to you know, make sure that it, it serves your purposes and that you get the most value out of it in the short amount of time that you've got to spend on it. I don't really know because I haven't been on Clubhouse yet, but it's just be interesting to 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 know how that pans out over time. Yeah, absolutely. I, and I also think um, it's a company that I'm actually work with, Childcare Seer. It's um, a SaaS product for daycare centres. Uh-huh. And the profile of the founder, Tom Callahan again, is really important and really interesting in, in the sense that the vision for the product and the vision for the company is a longer-term vision. It's a big vision of how to not aggregate, I guess, within, within the industry, but also to provide something that is a need that you, you from listening within the industry and listening to, to murmurs from people who work in it, you can understand what their pain points are to the point where you're able to not only satisfy it for them, but also be able to provide things that they didn't even consider further down the line. And obviously we're working on the roadmap for that. So some of those things will are yet to be seen. But the the point from that is that as a founder, you want to be able to have a vision bigger than your immediate product, but also be able to focus on building that immediate product. So being able to look at the short and long-term uh, simultaneously is, is really important. And you'll see that with the products. Yeah. So Alex, what would be the best way for people to get in touch with you if they if they want to talk to you about their business? I'm on LinkedIn uh, as Alex M. Weeks, W-E-E-K-E-S. Uh, I'm also happy to, to, to speak to people by email as well. So it's Alex at the Tech Gorge, T-H-E-T-E-C-H-G-O-R-G-E dot com. Yeah, happy to have a conversation with anyone who's uh, got an idea or part with your business or interested in, in approaching investors first thing we'll work on is is kind of get you a, go through the assessment to see how you score in the different areas and then we can go from there fabulous well alex thank you so much it's been an absolutely a wonderful interview and thank you very much for joining us today and look forward to hearing from you and hearing your progress soon absolutely thanks for having me jane it was a pleasure bye-bye cheers bye-bye Thanks for listening to the Smart Connector podcast. If you've enjoyed the show, please take a moment to leave us an iTunes review. It helps other entrepreneurs find us more easily. And if you send a screenshot to jane at janebaylor.com, I'll put you into the draw to win a $50 Amazon voucher, which we give away monthly. Keep coming back and I look forward to seeing you again soon.